And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. Forget the men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. God bless the USA. Good morning. Welcome to Connecting the Dots with Dan Happel. I'm going to have Mike King on. He's written like 26 books. And you talk about a guy that uh, knows where the bear excruciatingly uh, pooped in the buckwheat. It's Mike. (laughs) All right. Anyway, we're going to be talking about the bad war today. Uh, with Mike King. He wrote a book called The Bad Word. And Thumper, I uh, sent you the the link there. It's uh, uh, his, his link is realhistorychan.com. And maybe we can pull up the, the uh, cover of the book, The Bad War. But we're going to be talking about uh, the information that he has on Adolf Hitler, which is considerably different than what has been written in our history books. And of course, we know that the history is written by the victors, so very seldom do we get the full story of things that are happening. But I I will tell you that I uh, spent some time over in Germany, and I was actually on a bus for 10 days with a lady who grew up as uh, a teacher in the uh, Third Reich, and she was teaching uh, young women how to uh, uh, be farm wives, basically, how to do all the things that were required to be a, a farm wife. And she was uh, she lived in the Reich uh, during all of her formative years. She escaped. Uh, with a German panzer unit uh, heading straight for uh, the west, the Western Front so that they could uh, connect with the Americans to uh, get out of the Soviet grasp. Uh, the Russians were coming in, and they were killing and raping anything they could find. Well, anyway, uh, Michael, while you were uh, changing computers, I was talking with the audience about what we're going to be talking about today, the bad war, and uh, how the Second World War uh, really didn't have to be the way it was, and really the First World War didn't have to be the way it was. Uh, Most of our wars don't have to be the way that they are, and we've been going from one false flag event to another 
literally uh, ad infinitum from one tragedy to another. And I think Americans and the world need to understand that the powers that be are here to do one thing, and that's to lead us through a series of tragedies to the ultimate, their ultimate final decision. So let's talk about all that. Yeah, well, and, and the two wars go hand in hand. I mean, World War One and World War Two are actually, could better be described as World War Part One and World War Part Two. Part Two, yep. And uh, the reason that they were engineered long in advance by the globalists is, is because nothing restructures a world like a war. A war changes everything, both domestically and in uh, terms on the foreign front. I mean, you're overturning systems and governments uh, and, and just, just setting up a whole new structure. Nothing does that like a war, and particularly a world war. So many countries at war. Uh, and, you know, we, in my book, The Bad War, I actually go back to the 19th century mm-hmm. and I start the story there. I don't begin in 1939 because it's critical to have that context. But the the one worlders, the globalists, the architects of the new world order, the cabal, uh, the international uh, Jewish mafia, whatever you want to call them, as far back as... Um, I mean, really, it goes back to the founding of the Illuminati. That's like 250 mm-hmm. years ago. But if we go back to the late 1800s, they were already putting in place um, these alliances that were to be triggered and to bring about the First World War. And as soon as that war was over, they had their new system or they had the blueprint for their new global system ready to go. The League of Nations... Mm-hmm. Um, was born out of World War One, and that was that was big for them. And it was some American patriots who kept us out of the League of uh, Nations, but nonetheless, we were still involved in European affairs after World War One. But that was the well, game. Plan. I, I, Colonel Colonel House and uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, working with the Brits, are the ones that came up with the whole League of Nations concept. And of course, that was based on ideas from the British Roundtable and uh, uh, Cecil Rhodes and all the international bankers who were tied in with the Zionist international banking cartel. Uh, I mean, you, you can't make this stuff up. It's there. It's not, uh, it, you, know, you know, if you, if you connect the dots, they all connect, don't they? Yeah, I mean, they certainly do, and there's there's no denying this, and, and you, you just see the whole pattern of how, of how they operated. And they, uh, you know, even openly spoke about the, the coming Great War, like 10 years in advance mm-hmm. um, of World War I. So, but look what World War I achieved. You, they overthrew the Tsar of Russia, and they instituted the bloody Bolshevik terror in Russia, Mm-hmm. The, the Kaiser of Germany was overthrown. The Habsburgs in Austria-Hungary were, were, were overthrown. The Sultans in Turkey was overthrown. So that was the whole thing. Overthrow all of the monarchies in order to replace them with parliamentary systems, and in Russia's case, a pure communist system. Um, but the parliamentarians are easier to control by the New World Order. So it really shook everything up. It transferred 
it was the final transfer of power from the the old European system, not to the people, you know, and, and the republics, but to these corrupt parliamentarian systems that ultimately served the, the globalists. And then out of it, the, the, the League of Nations was to be their embryonic structure for world government. So World War I didn't finish the job, but it, it was a great step forward uh, for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, there was a resistance after a while to, this, to this, uh, uh, these communist movements and these globalism. And that really, it really took hold in Germany, because Germany was treated so poorly after World War I. It was financially devastated and raped, and its territory was taken away. And mind you, Germany was the one country that did not want to go to war. The the Kaiser did everything he could Mm -hmm. to avoid the war, but it was imposed upon Germany 100%. And then they were deceived into surrendering unconditionally. And then they were brutalized. And, of course, this led to a lot of resentment and then the rise of Hitler's movement and that's the kind of stuff I talk about in the bad war, setting the stage for World War II, which really was the transformational event that still defines the modern world. And by the way, the bad war was banned by Amazon after oh, three years that. of yeah, three yeah. years of very good sales. It put me on the map. Uh, and then the usual suspects started complaining and they would remove the bad war. And then they removed all of my books from uh, Amazon. But I should mention the good news is you can still uh, purchase them either in paperback form or PDF at my website, realhistorychan.com. It's the Real History Channel, realhistorychan.com. I call it real history as opposed to fake history. Um, and my motto is that fake history is the fake news that has passed into the rearview mirror. And it truly is. And, and the news was all fake back then. And you mm-hmm. think about it logically. Why wouldn't... what? What makes people think that the news was real in, in 1940? They were just as dishonest, just as deceptive back then. You see what they do today sure. with current events. Well, they did the same thing in uh, 1940. So that's why I call it the Real History Channel. Realhistorychan.com. Tons of free stuff there, but you could also get these banned books, paperback or PDF format. Well, and 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 Michael, you do a, a uh, anti-New York Times uh, article virtually every day, uh, t- you know, when, when they come up with some of this fake news, you uh, rebut a lot of the stuff that they're reporting with good, solid stuff. But let, let's go back to uh, discussion about the First World War, because the, the Germans didn't want into the war, but they got brought into the war. Obviously, a, a, Serb, a Serbian uh, assassin uh, took out Arch, uh, Archduke Ferdinand, and that's really the event that uh, they used to try to trigger the war. But um, Germany got into the war without really wanting to be there. But after two years, uh, they were pretty much winning the war. In fact, they were winning the war. The German submarines, the U-boats that the Brits didn't have any idea about, uh, all but shut down British shipping. Uh, and the uh, in the trenches, the Germans were uh, excellent soldiers and, and well-trained. So they were doing a great job 
on the battlefront, although trench warfare, you know, pretty much was a, a sucky deal anyway. But lo and behold, uh, the Brits and J.P. Morgan really worked hard to get uh, Woodrow Wilson, who incidentally had just passed the Federal Reserve Act uh, at Chris, uh, Christmas Eve in uh, 1913. Uh, anyway, he was kind of a product of the Morgan and the Rothschild banking uh, cartel. And uh, he had agreed to try to bring the United States into the war, even though he had campaigned on keeping us out of the war. And so I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to let you flesh that out a little bit, because that's what led us to uh, the, the Versailles Treaty, which was the most unfair, dishonest, uh, document and of course that led to Hitler. So I'm I'm, I'm just starting the the engine here. Yeah. You take it. <laughs> well, you know you, you can't have a world government without the United States in it. The United States was so large and so powerful at that time. So uh, as they were planning, setting the pieces together to set up these um, these alliances, these war alliances in Europe, they had, were also envisioning bringing the United States into the war. And as far back as like the late 1800s, early 1900s, when the Protocols of Zion was published, it says right in there uh, the United States could be brought into a European war. So this is 15, 20 years before World War I. And just one year before the world war started, and this is not a coincidence, like you said, uh, Wilson <clears throat> signed into law the Federal Reserve counterfeiting scheme and the federal income tax. So we can go into perpetual debt and print all the money we need for the future wars. So the two go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So you had the establishment of the Fed and the income tax. The following year, they they use these, uh, these Serbian secret societies to uh, commit the act which triggered the war, okay? Uh, a war between Austria, Hungary, and Serbia. Russia was uh, bound to defend Serbia. Russia was also in an alliance with France and Great Britain. So it was a big mess. Everything just triggered like dominoes. And here you have the German Kaiser all the way up until the 11th hour uh, urging both Austria, Hungary, and Russia to you know, restrain themselves. Um, but once all of the militaries began mobilizing, and mind you, Germany was the very last to mobilize its military, they put into effect their two-front plan because they're surrounded on two fronts, Russia on the east, Britain and France on the west. So they struck out in both directions. And uh, not one inch of German territory was ever occupied during this war. So they were, if not necessarily winning the war, they were in a <clears throat> superior situation where there was no German territory under occupation and the lines were stalemated. So there was no reason for the war to go on. <clears throat> and Germany, you know, from the beginning and throughout the entire war, had a standing peace offer on the table, <clears throat> which was essentially said, let's just stop the fighting and everybody go home to the way and go back to the way things were. And <clears throat> at, at one point, Britain was considering this offer. Uh, and that's when the, the Zionists made, made their move. And they said to the British, you don't have to make peace with Germany. You can still win this war. 
if the United States comes in on your side. Mm-hmm. So here's the deal. Uh, Germany is allied with Turkey, which controls Palestine. So you take Palestine and you, you start allowing the Jews to emigrate there so we can set up an eventual homeland. You make that pledge, and on our end, we'll get the United States into the war. And they had that kind of power because Woodrow Wilson was controlled by these big Jewish moguls, um, uh, Bernard Baruch, uh, uh, Paul Warburg, uh, Jacob Schiff was still around back there, Felix Frankfurter, and they totally owned them. And they had him blackmailed because he had an affair when he was in a, a professor at Princeton. And, and it was a different moral climate back then. If the people had known about something like that, he would have been finished. So that's how we got the Fed and the income tax and the World War. He was just a poor, pathetic man, this Woodrow Wilson, who had to obey his masters. And it was the entry of the United States into the war, which it, it although it turned the tide, it still was not enough to defeat Germany. Uh, especially when the Bolshevik Revolution overthrew Russia. So now mm-hmm. Germany no longer had an Eastern Front. They concentrated on the West. So it would have been a real meat grinder if the United States had to go into Germany and into Berlin. Uh, so rather than go that route, they pulled a trick on Germany, both from within and without. They, Woodrow Wilson said, uh, promised them peace without victory. Okay, just lay down your weapons, go home, and we'll make a nice peace deal. Mm-hmm. And then internally, you had the traitors, the globalists and the communists within Germany itself, were beginning to undermine the, the war effort, both in the press and through the labor unions having strikes during the war and things like that. So Germany was deceived and betrayed at the same time into an unconditional surrender out of which grew the Treaty of Versailles, which was just punitive and horrible, both economically and uh, in terms of stripping territory away from Germany. Uh, And and again, this was the country that wanted peace, yet they were forced to accept blame for the war at gunpoint, literally at gunpoint, because they had been duped into disarming and going home, and it was a hunger blockade imposed upon Germany. Right. So they were told, yeah, sign here or else, or we're going to keep killing you people. And that's how the Treaty of Versailles was it was agreed to, and it was just horrific. Destroyed the German economy, uh, caused chaos politically, economically, and um, this is what led to the rise of Hitler's movement. Well, they, uh, Mike, uh, they they lost land uh, in uh, the Rhineland, really, because that was occupied by France, and that was their main industrial sector. They lost uh, a huge tract of land in Prussia, in East Prussia, that uh, uh, created the Danzig Partition. And uh, Poland, they gave Poland that land, and that was uh, all, pretty much all occupied by Germans. Uh, They gave them that. They also gave them concessions around Czechoslovakia. Uh, They... Uh, they did things that basically led to what Hitler did in 1938-1939 in trying to regain, well, and started in 36 when they went back into the Rhineland. But th- what Hitler did was try to bring uh, all the land that had been taken under the Versailles Treaty back under 
German control because it had historically been uh, under their control. Yeah, I mean, these are all German people. The Sudetenland was 97% German. Uh, East Prussia was 90-something percent uh, German. Uh, and then you had Austria, which are German people, but they were separated and forbidden from politically joining uh, Germany, as a lot of them wanted to do. Uh, but it wasn't just enough that the land was stolen and the people were separated. Even beyond that, <clears throat> I mean, Hitler would have tolerated that. But it went further than that. These people were being abused by the globalist-owned pro-communist Czechoslovak government and also by the ultra-nationalist expansionist government in Poland. Uh, totally abused, without rights, in many cases just being murdered, looted, and killed. And, and there was a provocation here. They wanted Hitler to make a move so they could say, ah, you see, he's the bad guy. We have to go to war. It was provocation after provocation, and he did all he could diplomatically to, to avert war. And he was successful in 1938 at the Munich Conference, where they finally reached a peaceful and fair settlement over Czechoslovakia. And uh, he tried to uh, reach a similar fair settlement in Poland. He, he appealed to other countries or even, even the Vatican to, to, to sit down and sponsor a conference to make a peaceful resolution there. But the warmongers kept pushing and pushing and pushing until they, uh, they reached the point where um, you know, the, the war had to go into Poland. I mean, they were just slaughtering Germans wholesale. Well, and, and Mike, I, that's an important thing. Um, a lot of people don't understand. They don't know, but there were over 50,000 German civilians in East Prussia, in uh, inside Poland, that were being slaughtered. And, I mean, they were literally being uh, drug out of their homes and uh, beaten to death and slaughtered. And uh, that was going on before... Hitler went into Poland. That's right. And some of this stuff goes as far back as the as the end of World War One and the Versailles Treaty was going on in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. uh, even the previous German, you know, left-wing liberal government used to complain about it. So I mean, this had been going on for 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 the longest time. Um, but you know, finally Hitler was able to achieve in 34 and 35 a good relationship with the um, with the military ruler of Poland. His name was um, uh, Pilzuski. He was on very good terms with him. Pilzuski wanted peace with Germany, and they were in the process of uh, <clears throat> trying to make a deal over that Polish situation. Conveniently, he just dies, up and dies in 1935 or 36, and that mm -hmm. changed everything because his successor, um, or the, the man who took control of Poland then, was Marshal uh, Edward Rids Smigley, and he was a real ultra-nationalist uh, warmonger, mm -hmm. uh, and it changed it changed everything. Um, but there's a number of these convenient deaths of prominent people in the mid '30s who uh, might have, you know, stood in the way uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, of the war. So that's the situation. Poland was 100% responsible for triggering World War II. And, and the only reason they did it is because they were being egged on and cited and given guarantees by the, the British warmongers, the French warmongers, 
and also behind the scenes FDR. So that is why Poland felt so confident that they could take on Germany. They, they figured it would be a two-front war. And finally, when it was, it was triggered, Britain and France pretty much just abandoned Poland and left, left them hanging. Mm-hmm. They were just, they used the ultra-nationalists of Poland. They, they really just played them for fools to get well, the war started, which is what they wanted. They wanted a world war. They didn't care about Poland. Right, right. And right in the middle of that whole mix were the uh, international um, Jewish banking cartel. The, the, the uh, Zionist bankers were right in the center of, of much of that controversy. Oh, yeah. Well, they were orchestrating it. They totally owned Roosevelt. Uh, they totally owned Churchill, who was, although he was not in power yet, he was what Hitler accurately described as um, he named Churchill, Anthony Eden, and some others as the, the, I think he referred to them as the government in waiting in, in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was totally owned by Bernard Baruch and the Rothschild and, and that whole crowd. So these were their, you know, these were their agents. It was just like World War, just like World War One. Mm-hmm. So well, you've written, uh, you've written a book uh, called uh, Churchill the Mad Dog. Uh, you've written British Mad Dog, yeah, Mad, British Mad Dog. I, I, I believe me, I, I love reading your stuff because it shows a perspective that we really don't know historically because we've been fed so much bullshit over the mm-hmm. over the years that uh, real history uh, doesn't seem to have a great place in American understanding of the political situation we're in. and and we get past all the all the BS and we get down to brass tacks and we're being led into the new world order and have been for 200 years. And it's done by the same group of people that uh, Hitler was fighting. That's now, right. Let's yeah. talk about that group because there's a lot of people, there's a lot of uh, folks that will say, well, this is nonsense because the, uh, um, you know, Hitler uh, tried to exterminate the entire Jewish uh, population of Germany and Europe. Uh, you've written some things that maybe challenges that a little bit. Let's uh, let's uh, hear what you've uh, discovered in your research. Well, and, and every war that the uh, the globalist trigger in the United States has been involved in, it's uh, the key element of the war is the atrocity propaganda. Because in order to have your people of a country support a war. You, you have to convince them that the war is a morally just cause. People aren't going to want to make those sacrifices of sending their, their sons to die, not to mention the enormous sacrifices on the home front. You know, there's economic hardships, there's usually inflation and, and so on. So uh, for a country to succeed in war and have the support of its people, it either has to be in the moral right or it has to pretend it's in the moral right, okay? And in the latter case, um, if you're going to portray your enemy falsely as the boogeyman and yourself is virtuous, the only way to do that is through atrocity propaganda. And this happened in World War I with all these stories and posters. You can still see them in the history books. 
they were saying that the Germans were they Killing came into Belgium and they and they took the Belgian babies and would throw them in the air and catch them with their bayonets. Right. And they had like cartoon illustrations of this appearing in newspapers. Uh, they said that they were crucifying and raping women, crucifying soldiers, and, and people like ex-president Teddy Roosevelt were repeating this garbage. Okay, so it's important to understand that precedent. So to come to World War II is the same thing. Uh, both during and especially after the war, when this enormous sacrifice had been made, they had to keep propping it up. So they invented the Holocaust. Now, what really happened? What happened is during the war, as a wartime security precaution, uh, uh, Hitler had the, the communists and the Jewish population of Eastern Europe interned in, uh, in uh, labor camps. No different than what FDR did with the Japanese, by the way. Of course, in the case of the Japanese Americans, they, they were loyal. They hadn't done anything wrong. But with, with the Jews of Eastern Europe, they were, they were overwhelmingly pro-Marxist, pro-communist. And there were, there were hundreds of thousands of them who were participating in the war as non-uniformed terroristic partisans killing German troops. So that, that is why the, the Jews were interned as enemies of Germany, but it was intended to be a temporary wartime security measure. And at the end, they were going to set up a nice Jewish homeland in Madagascar off the coast of Africa. So yes, the camps existed. We know they existed and there were people in there, but all that other stuff that came out after the war, uh, the gas chambers and the extermination of millions and uh, uh, Jews being skinned and turned into lampshades and bars of soap. It's, it's all false. It's outrageous atrocity propaganda, um, but it's stuck. And it's been repeated so, so often, so many years. And you try to explain to people that this is just a, a fairy tale now. It, it's very hard for people to grasp that, but that's what it was. It was just atrocity propaganda. And, you know, we still see this stuff today. Do you remember when the Iraq went into Kuwait? And you had the, 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 the woman who claimed to be a nurse, she said the Iraqi soldiers came into the hospitals and they took all the babies out of the incubators and smashed them on the floor. She's in front of Congress crying. I mean, this still goes on. Mm -hmm. um, but that's all it was. So, mm -hmm. no, there, there, was, there, there was no Holocaust. There was no mass extermination. The only mass extermination was of the German civilian population who were uh, mercilessly bombed and firebombed, burned alive by the hundreds of thousands and millions. So, uh, and that's a fact, and that's easily proven, which is why uh, all of the so-called Holocaust denial books were removed from, from Amazon, because the, you know, they're afraid of this information getting out. But it's, it's actually quite easily debunkable once you get past the psychological barrier. Well, um, you know, that's a, an important term is uh, uh, Holocaust denier. It's kind of like uh, uh, a similar term that we're seeing a lot today is uh, election deniers, uh, people who challenge uh, whether or not we had an open and fair election in 2020 yeah. and in the midterms in 2022. Don't climate change God, deniers. For, yeah, for God's sake, <laughs> yeah. don't uh, question the official story, or you will be a denier. And yeah. uh, that is like the most horrible thing in the world. Now, 
we also have 911 uh, deniers. Uh, we have a lot of deniers out there. And really what it boils down to is anytime you challenge the uh, the story, the, the uh, I guess, the official lies, you're going to be a denier. It's just that simple. Yeah. Yeah, well, they coined that phrase because it derives from a, a denier, in denial, mm -hmm. cognitive dissonance. In other words, you're a little crazy. You mm -hmm. can't accept reality. So right. Um, right. that's why they chose that term, climate change denier, election denier, Holocaust denier. So... You know, I call this Mike Mike's rule of reversal. Just just reverse everything. When they say, uh, when you see something like blank denier, know that the thing that is being denied is is actually the uh, truth, yes, or the truth. Yeah. Uh, however you want to look at it, right? So, um, <clears throat> but they're very clever in their terminology. You know, you know when they, they, when they are. use a they word are. like. You know, denier, conspiracy theorist. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, exactly. Not yeah. conspiracies. We don't have conspiracies. We just have conspiracy theories. Uh, yeah. God forbid that anybody actually discover all the conspiracies that are out there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Mike, I, I I appreciate the fact that you've got the. Uh, the guts to come on on air and talk about this stuff because it is a big deal. Uh, if people knew our real history, if people understood how we've been led by the nose through a whole series of incredible tragedies, and if the people that are orchestrating this crap were ever held accountable, uh, they would end up uh, being probably uh, hung by the neck or skinned alive from uh, by yeah. the anger that it would generate because people don't realize just exactly how screwed we've been for how long. And your books basically point that out. Now, uh, let's continue on the story with Adolf Hitler, but I know that he was an extreme nationalist uh, when he... Uh, took over Germany, uh, was given uh, power by uh, uh, Hindenburg, I think, in 1932 uh, to um, basically run the government. It was because he was doing such a good job of trying to get people employed and doing some of the other things. And in talking with this lady that I was with in Germany, this older lady who told me all about uh, what was going on in Germany, the reason the people were so loyal to Hitler for so long was because he had done some amazing things. The depression that hit the United States and most of Europe, uh, Germany was in the process of uh, not only pulling themselves out, they were out of the Depression by 1935. And uh, considering that they had been stripped of all their wealth and uh, just absolutely prostrated by the, the uh, uh, Versailles Treaty, they did amazing things. And really, Hitler was right in the center of that, wasn't he? Oh, he certainly was. And, and, you know, again, this is one of the facts that is kind of at the time was universally acknowledged. People couldn't deny it. Today, it's just ignored. 
the fact that uh, the world remained mired in this horrible depression. And here you have Germany. Hitler is in there just a few years. Germany is booming. They're building highways and churning out Volkswagens and uh, ordinary working people are taking these expense, these nice, beautiful vacations on cruise ships. There were all vacation programs were put together for the working people. Uh, unemployment was virtually zero. I mean, well, nobody ever asked that. Why did the United States, with all the resources and the land and the population and the wealth, stayed in depression throughout the entire 1930s? Mm-hmm. Same with Britain and France. What's going on in Germany that's so special? And the the, the reason, the main reason is he, um, the the currency reform, for one, he, he issued his own debt-free currency. You didn't have this system where every dollar uh, injected into the economy is injected at interest. So uh, he also he, he cut taxes, he cut bureaucracy. I mean, they call the party the National Socialist Party, uh, but that was just a term meaning, you know, we're all in this together. It was not to be confused with the socialism of American liberals or, or Karl Marx. Uh, you worked, and but the system was pro-business and pro-family, okay? Uh, but it was it was really an economic miracle. I, I did a piece, I don't know if you saw, I saw it, I sent it out a couple of days ago about Time Magazine hit piece that they did oh, on yeah. Hitler in I 1938. Did. It was vicious. This is before the war broke out. And yet there was one paragraph in there where Time Magazine had to acknowledge the, the German economic miracle and how happy the people were and everything that was done. And it was like, I call them truth gems in a pile of manure. You know, they have to like put that in there. Cause, and even Churchill acknowledged this. Nobody could deny the revival, not just economic, but moral, cultural revival that took place in Germany in just a few short years. It really was miraculous. And even the people who hated Hitler and wanted to wage war against him and take him out reluctantly had to acknowledge that fact. So that's, that's, that's the truth. And that's why the Germans loved him for it. He delivered on his promises. And, you know, it's interesting. Germany was deeply divided when his party was first elected in, into power. And his, uh, they came into power not with a majority, but with a plurality, because there were so many different parties. It was impossible to get over 50%, but they did get the most. Um, yeah, they had 100 and seat, 106 <laughs> seats in the... In in the uh, Reichstag, uh, but that was out of almost 800, right? Right. But let me tell you what happened, though. After just three years, they held a referendum in in, in Germany. And you won't find this in the history books, but it's true. And the question on the ballot was, uh, would you like to have just a clean slate in the parliament, the Bundestag, of just the National Socialist Party, or would you rather have the system of, you know, in the individual parliamentarians running? So, in other words, yeah, you have a choice. We could stay with the old system where you have the elections in different parties, or just one clean slate, all Nazis, so-called Nazis. They didn't call themselves Nazis. Mm-hmm. 96% of the German public gave Hitler an affirmation of just just a clean slate. So in other words, it was a unanimous party. It would be, in essence, it would be comparable to Trump saying, listen, if you like me, 
just give me 435 clean slate Republican congressmen, or we can just keep it the way it is. And imagine 98% of the American public say, no, we'll just give you 100% conservative <laughs> Republicans. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happened. And that's remarkable because these are the same people who just three years earlier, uh, about 5 million of them voted Communist Party. Right, right. Another 5 million voted for the Liberal Progressive Party. So in other words, the left, the right, the center, they all united behind them, okay? The left adored Hitler because he delivered better circumstances for the working people. Yet at the same time, the elite business class liked Hitler because he was pro-business. So in other words, he eliminated all of these artificial distinctions between the German Catholic and a German Protestant or a Bavarian German and a Hessian German or a, a working class German or a professional German. So his whole idea of socialism was we're one people. And it was an egalitarian system that he put in place where anybody could rise to the top in any of the professions and in the military. Mm-hmm. This created some problems, though, with some of the aristocratic remnants of Germany. Okay, These were the, the only people left in Germany that did not want Hitler were some of the old aristocratic elements, particularly in the military, because they didn't like this idea of someone like Hitler coming up from nothing, basically an orphan, right. and he's a corporal, and now he's he's the commander-in-chief, and this is the system he wants his place. And they wanted their privileges, and this was a big problem in World War II because a lot of these guys turned traitor. They worked against Germany. They figured if Germany lost, we could get rid of Hitler, and there's a whole mm-hmm. story there. It's very tragic. So, But those... He had the universal support of all Germans, with the exception of the hardcore communists who could never reform, mm-hmm. and some of these old aristocratic elites. But other than that, he was just universally adored by the uh, public because he dedicated his life for the people. He truly was for the people. Everybody says, I'm for the people. In his case, he truly was, mm-hmm. and they knew that, and they were for him. So he was their leader. He, was their, he served the people, and the, and the people served him. And it was, uh, they were the happiest people on earth. And that's a fact which is written and acknowledged by former British Prime Minister David Lloyd George. Right. He says, I've never seen anything like this. So, mm-hmm. I saw you that. know, the globalists don't want that. They want us miserable, in debt, living in shacks and eating bugs. That's their vision of a new world order. This idea of universal prosperity and brotherhood, nah, can't have that. Well, it's the World War II. You you brought up something that's very interesting because it's never talked about, and it should be talked about a lot. And that was that when Hitler came in, uh, that the German uh, the the German mark had gone through an incredible nightmare uh, after the Versailles Treaty and and twenty two and twenty three. You could literally take a wheelbarrow full of uh, currency down to the grocery store, you'd be lucky if you could buy a loaf of bread. There's a story about uh, somebody taking a wheelbarrow foot of cash down to the grocery and uh, somebody stole the wheelbarrow and dumped all the cash on the street. Uh, the <laughs> wheelbarrow was yeah. worth way more than the, than the cash was. Uh, when Hitler came in, he tried to create a new gold-based monetary system that was based on assets, and you said something incredibly important. 
the elimination of usury, the elimination of debt-based currency that paid interest to whoever issued the currency. Yeah, that's that's the killer. I mean, it's one thing to get a business loan, which you know entails some degree of risk. Certainly, uh, someone's going to lend you that money. They're going to want something in return. I mean, that, that's a different matter. But when you talk about interest on the issuance of the currency itself, that's just insane. I mean, the currency is something for uh, the public to facilitate trade so we don't have to barter, okay? Why should any institution or, or private be making interest on that? And the problem with that, Dan, is when every dollar or mark that's injected into the economy is injected at interest, Think about it logically. What that means. You can uh, never pay money, it off. Right. Yeah. The money is principal. Mm -hmm. the, the interest is, uh, or, or the money owed back is principal plus interest. Mm -hmm. So P plus I is always greater than P. So how can, how can uh, these loans be paid back when there's not enough money in circulation? The answer, create more debt money. And, but that but that just expands the problem. So, and right. now you end up in a situation where if you add up, say, in the United States, our national debt, our state debts, our corporate debt, our personal debt, home mortgages, car loans, credit cards, everything, and, and match it up to the money supply, this is our debt. It's a mountain, and this is our money supply. It's just an insane system that keeps you in perpetual bondage because you're, you're actually putting a charge at the creation at the moment that the money is is, is created. Mm -hmm. And if people just understood that, and it's not a terribly complicated uh, concept, they, the, the economists complicate it in order to confuse people. But I got a booklet, Bancarada, which is like a children's allegory, which explains <laughs> everything. You can get it at realhistoryjan.com. Uh, well, um, uh, Michael, when you're talking about- can, can you see this picture yeah. here? There Here's a gentleman with a wheelbarrow full of German marks. That's how worthless the currency was. Mm -hmm. Here's a postage stamp. They had to uh, put marks on the existing postage stamp to, to raise the uh, price. 20 million and 20 million marks. Later on, it goes on to billions of marks, trillions of marks for a postage stamp. Just kept going up and up and up. So what that means is if you had some money- and actually, we're seeing this now with today's inflation. You know, especially if like you're a senior citizen and you've got a few hundred thousand dollars stashed away uh, in CDs or something like that. If you have, we've had about 50% inflation over the last two and a half years. Mm -hmm. So that means you're 100, if you've got a $100,000 CD, you really have 50,000 all of a sudden. You've lost purchasing power. It's purchasing power. It's not the number. Right. So imagine, this means every German saver had their savings wiped out by the inflation that was caused in the aftermath of Versailles in the early 1920s, okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, that's how bad it was. And then Hitler came to power there were over 100,000 suicides a year in, in Germany. I mean, the desperation was just, you know, women prostituting themselves. I mean, they were on their knees. And they, so you had well, the economic... Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. Let, let's talk about that because pornography and all the stuff, the debauchery that was going on in Germany when Hitler came into power, 
uh, it had become kind of the sin center of Europe. And a lot of that was, uh, you know, in a certain ethnic set. set. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, not only that, but then on in the uh, the Ruhr in nineteen, I believe it was nineteen twenty four twenty five. After all <laughs> this inflation had gone on, uh, the Germans uh, couldn't pay the reparations one year, and uh, France went into the the Rhineland and uh, actually occupied the Rhineland and took over the industries in the Rhineland and took the produce and the, and the products that were being produced. And the Germans quit working when that happened because there was no, there was no incentive for them to work. The French were taking everything. And the atrocities that happened in the Rhineland, the, the, uh, the French were uh, beating Germans. They were... Uh, you know, they were treating them like an occupying force that was really nasty to the local population. So this history of hatred of what had happened as a result of the Versailles Treaty, it's completely justified. Yeah, it is. But, and, but what's really remarkable is when the tables were turned and, and Germany uh, occupied France in the early stages of World War II, mm-hmm. Uh, and that was totally justified because France and Britain started the war. Uh, but the German occupation of France was, um, I mean, it, it was pleasant. It was friendly. <laughs> they, treated, they treated the French very well. They didn't uh, extract reparations. There, there was no payback for what the French had done. You know, it's just, uh, you know, we're going to have to occupy the northern part of your country until the war is over to prevent a British invasion across the channel. Uh, so that just shows you the difference in, in the treatment. But yeah, the occupation was brutal. You know, the currency was no good, so the French just went in and started taking the uh, the industrial goods and the raw materials. He undid the gun control laws. Okay? He gave German provinces and their guns back. It's totally the opposite. So yeah, that's an important point because I've heard that many, yeah. many times. And and in fact, the disarmament had happened as a result of the Versailles Treaty. That was when right. the gun control happened in Germany. That's right. And Hitler undid all, undid all of that. The only people Hitler disarmed were the, the communist terrorists who were shooting at German troops. Okay. That's your so-called, you know, Hitler gun control. Uh, but no, he was pro-gun. Pro he was pro-Christianity. He was pro-morality, pro-ethics. And he... Um, he cleaned up Berlin. Like you said, Berlin was just horrible. It made Las Vegas seem clean, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, the homosexuality and the trannies back then, you see all the, the German men back then dressing as women in, in Berlin. Uh, Berlin was just horrible. But how that's what that I had a country. To, how huh? did that happen? Tell me. It, how it that just, the, well, you know, the. the the people lost faith after World War One. They were so demoralized and depressed, and they they were easy prey to the debasement of the morals that immediately took hold in the German theater, for example, in the German literature. I say German in quote because these were the burlesque houses were all run by by Jews and communists, and they were promoting this 
in you know specifically in Berlin. Um, so yeah, I mean that's another thing that a war does, particularly once a war is lost and people become discouraged and demoralized. They kind of turn their back on all the traditional things, and you saw this in a sense with the hippie movement in the '60s. They were so uh, disillusioned by the Vietnam War, and with good reason. Um, but unfortunately, they were easily manipulated. These young hippie college students into in rebelling against the war, they kind of threw out the baby with the bathwater. They rebelled against everything, even the traditional morals and the cultures and the beliefs. Let's throw everything out. That's sort of, and that's, that's, uh, they engineer this when wars go bad because people are already dejected and demoralized and delusioned. So it's easy to destroy all the other stuff that they once believed in too, especially the young. <clears throat> and this happened big time in, in, in Germany. I think, um, I might not to digress, but I think we're seeing that happen in the United States today. Uh, yeah. A very similar situation. You look at, uh, we spent uh, 20 years uh, fighting an endless war that we were led into by a false flag event, 9-11. Uh, we ended up in the Middle East for uh, 20 years, and at the end of that, we uh, we uh, we left in a uh, almost a panic, and left 80 billion dollars worth of war material over in Afghanistan. And what did we accomplish? Absolutely nothing. Would have been better off to let Saddam Hussein stay in power in Iraq and check the Iranians because they were in a, a constant battle along their borders. And uh, at the time that Saddam was in, in Iraq, uh, Christians were not being persecuted in the same way they are now. Actually, Saddam allowed all faiths in his country, yeah. and uh, the Sunni and the Shia uh, all had their own place in the country. Uh, look at the mess we've got now in the Middle East, and the and and we created a level of hatred of the United States that did not exist prior to 9/11. Yeah, well, 9/11 was their was their big move, out of which they were really uh, hoping to get total control of the Middle East and Central Asia, which is critical to the New World Order. Mm -hmm. Brzezinski wrote about this in 1998. Yeah, the he, Great he American Chessboard. Uh, that's right. If we, we don't control uh, Central Asia, eventually Russia and China will come back and dominate it and uh, basically saying we won't get our new world order. And he says the challenge is the American people don't want war uh, unless there's something like he invoked Pearl Harbor. So he was kind of right. winking already at his fellow elite. Something's coming. Mm -hmm. The the good news is that we are finally out, thanks to the efforts of President Trump and Central Asia now, all of these countries and, and you know Russia and China, they have purged themselves to a large extent of this globalist influence, which is why we're in a period of relative, you know, relative peace. So um, so yeah, it was it was all for nothing. But it could have been it could have been a lot worse because the original plan was to subdue all these countries, Iraq, mm -hmm. 
Iran, and then Syria just go one after the other after the other in perpetual wars. Um, well, Gaddafi's it hasn't worked out. I mean, they got they got Gaddafi, mm-hmm. they got Saddam, they didn't get Assad though, and yeah. that was that was like the that's kind of where it was stopped. That was Russia's line in the sand. Mm-hmm. Is that we're not going to allow Syria to fall. Meanwhile, on his end, Trump quietly in early 2017, not long after he became president, he ended the CIA funding for the rebels of Syria. So their arms and their money is dr- from the CIA is drying up. Meanwhile, Russia and Iran are bombing them. And that's, uh, that's what happened to so-called ISIS and the rebels. These were proxy armies. Well, so- as a matter of fact, we had a, uh, my guest, uh, uh, on Sunday was uh, Michael Enright. If you know who Michael is, he's the English uh, American actor who went to the Middle East uh, to fight for uh, the uh, uh, Christian and the uh, Kurdish uh, militia there to try to fight ISIS. And in fact, was there when ISIS uh, collapsed. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a, but think of all the tragedy and all the lives that have been destroyed and all the things that have happened. And everything in that, Michael, is understanding that the New World Order wants to get rid of as many people as they can. They've got to get rid of uh, 7 billion people. People, get your head around that. They've got to get rid of. 93% 93% of the world's population, do you really think that uh, using everybody as cannon fodder is a problem for them? They they have as much regard for human life as, you know, an exterminator does when someone calls them with a cockroach problem. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It means nothing oh. to them. And And this was really illustrated in World War II. I mean, you read about the terror bombing of of German cities. Now, apart from the fact that the war itself was unjust, let's say you think it was a just war and that uh, Hitler had to be taken out. He was the monster and the Germans are bad. Even if you accept that nonsense, there was no cause to firebomb these civilian neighborhoods uh, which didn't even have factories in them. It was just a deliberate killing burning alive and suffocating of as many Germans as possible. And then after the war, Eisenhower starved, he killed 1.5 Sherman BOWs through deliberate neglect, hunger and exposure to the elements. That's a true story. And I, uh, or you look at the, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, at a time when Japan is begging to surrender. They want to negotiate a surrender. Uh a lot of people don't know that, so, uh, Mike. But let's, just, let's just kill, kill, kill. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really, it's <clears throat> always been about that. Now, I don't want to get too far off track because I, I want to keep this going. But um, talk about what happened in the 1930s with Adolf Hitler, what his plans were, how he ended up in the Sudetenland, how he ended up mm. bringing Austria back into uh, the German uh, influence, how he went into Poland. This is all a real, uh, very, very logical, uh, connected series of events 
that were basically there to try to bring uh, Germany back to what it was before World War I tore it apart. That's right. Well, first you had the merger with Austria. That was in the spring of 1938. Uh, Austria was ruled by a puppet globalist government that just ignored the will of the Austrian people. They, they wanted their own National Socialist Party, which was banned in Austria, and they wanted to merge with, with Germany because they're, they're German people. The, the only people who didn't want that was the puppet government and some of the old aristocratic elements of Austria-Hungary, uh, and of course, the Jews of Vienna. So you have a tiny upper crust dictating to 98% of the Austrians how, how things are going to go. And um, this is you know, unacceptable. And Hitler went in without a shot being fired, and the German troops and Hitler himself, they were given a hero's welcome. Mm -hmm. So it was a totally voluntary merger. You understand? So, and, and yet somehow that gets spun into, oh, he, he conquered Austria. That's ridiculous. Because after this was done, it was called the Anschluss, they had a vote, a referendum. Uh, do you accept this merger? And it was 99%. It was just like when C Crimeans voted to return to Russia. So, well, and then Hitler was an Austria. Hitler was an Austria. He was Austria. And when he went back to Vienna and his hometown, you could see some of the videos, and the, these aren't rigged. I mean, the, the entire town is out there throwing flowers, and you see the women crying. It was just such a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Then we go to uh, the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia. Same exact situation, 97%, this long strip of territory that uh, they deliberately made it a part of Czechoslovakia. It had no business being part of Czechoslovakia when they invented this country after the World War I. But, you know, they're already thinking ahead. This could be a future area of conflict where we could trigger a war. But again, if Hitler goes in, heroes welcome. 97, 98% of the people German. Uh, Poland, the same thing. So these are all German, completely German uh, areas. But now here's the thing. It wasn't merely the fact that they were German, and he says, we're going to reclaim these German lands and German people. He might have tolerated the situation of Germans living in a foreign country, but it was the abuse, okay, that really made it intolerable. And he, he says, if this doesn't end, I have to go in. And they kept abusing, kept abusing. And, and, uh, and it's interesting, when World War II happened, they, uh, they put the Sudetenland back under Czechoslovakia. They put Czechoslovakia back together again. Mm -hmm. And all three million Germans were expelled with the clothes mm -hmm. on their back. Wow. So, you know, uh, these fake historians, they portray Austria and then Czechoslovakia and then Poland as, as like, as if it's like a pattern, a sequence of aggression that he should have been stopped early. No, none of it was. None of it was. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, you know, like you're going just, back into the Rhineland. Um, it, well, it that's was, Germany. That's Germany going back into Germany. Exactly. Right? Going well. Yeah. So was so was uh, basically. But that wasn't even by force. The, the deal with the Rhineland was it was supposed to be a 10 year occupation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, or 10 or 15 years, I, I think it expired right about the time Hitler came in. So they weren't supposed to, the French weren't supposed to be in there for, um, forever anyway. It, it was just 10 to 15 years. 
what they complained about is that they say he remilitarized the Rhineland. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> I mean, does a country have uh, a right to uh, defend its borders or not? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Obviously we, not. And that's another United myth. States. That's another myth. They talk about, oh, he started remilitarizing, arming up Germany. What they don't tell you is that the German military after Versailles had been reduced Essentially, a police force, 100,000 for a a country of 80 million people surrounded by enemies. So he wasn't building up the German military. He was just getting it back to a a sane level. You know, they didn't have a military. So, Mm -hmm. and that got spun into, oh, he's arming, he's arming. But the fact is, on the eve of World War II, Germany, out of the major countries, had the smallest military in Europe. Number one, in terms of manpower and material, would have been the Soviet Union. Second was France. Uh, third, Poland. Okay? Mm. How did, why would, because they were building Poland up for the World War. And then, of course, you had the the, the might of the British Empire. So, so Germany ranked fifth mm. in terms of manpower and, and material. Uh, the reason they had such early success was because of, of their tactics and their... Uh, uh, you know their spirit, their their, their morale, and then mm-hmm. they began to build up build up the military. But on, on the eve of uh, World War II, they uh, they were nowhere near the manpower of of the enemy countries that were seeking to impose war on Germany. Well, they so, had it's just lie after lie after lie after after yeah. lie. Hitler yeah. wanted disarmament, and he, repeat, yeah. he proposed conferences to 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 disarm and never have a war again. He hated war. That's the last thing he wanted. He didn't want war. Mm-hmm. And he even said, you know, the, this war keeps me from the cultural achievements that I want to, want to establish for the German people. And it well, was really and a tragedy. There was no German Navy uh, prior to 1936. They had completely disbanded. In fact, they had given uh, the German Navy uh, to the French and the British uh, at yeah. the end of uh, the First World War. Yeah. I mean, they, they totally disarmed this country. And uh, it, it, was, it was just horrible what they did. And, and just, just to get back to a sane, rational level of, of military defense, um, yeah, they mm-hmm. spun that into a military buildup to say, oh, he's planning for war, planning for war. And then when they finally instigated Germany to the point where they had to fight in self-defense, it's like, ah, you see? Aha. Mm-hmm. We were right all along. What a madman. Um, well, let's let's talk about what uh, Hitler did uh, with the uh, partition of Poland and the alliance that he mm-hmm. made with uh, uh, Joseph Stalin. And then that kind of leads into some of the other things that happened. Yeah, a lot of misinformation about that deal as well. And they always leave out the context. The context is this, uh, 37, 38, early part of uh, 39, the British are openly, and I can show you articles in the New York Slimes, they're openly courting and proposing to the Soviet Union a two-front alliance against Germany, just like they had before World War I. And this is what Hitler is up against. It's a, it's a big problem. So they, they reached out to the Soviet Union to hatch this non-aggression pact. It wasn't an alliance. It was just a non-aggression pact. No matter what, we're not going to go to war. And um, so that was the, the, the idea 
Hitler's idea was if we make a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union, then Britain is not going to be able to proceed with instigating another war on just one front. Okay. Mm -hmm. So from his point of view, it was purely defensive. Of course, that got spun into, oh, Germany and uh, Hitler and Stalin divvied up Poland. Now, there was a provision in that treaty. Uh, they call it a secret provision. It was kind of secret. wasn't well known until after the war. <clears throat> the caveat was, if war broke out anyway, okay, then, then Germany is going to take back those territories in Poland that once belonged to Germany and those people. Mm -hmm. Stalin was able to extract a concession. He said, okay, well, we lost some territory too after World War I. We're, we're going to take that. So Hitler had to agree to that. But it was a contingency if war broke out. Hitler still didn't want war. So again, it was not, okay, let's make a deal so I could start my war with Poland. No, it's mm -hmm. let's make a deal, let's avoid war. However, if the British succeed in kicking off this war anyway, uh, I'm taking back Danzig. Mm -hmm. Okay, And then Stalin said, okay, well, I'm taking back a piece of Romania, a piece of this that was taken off world. So Hitler had to concede. So it's a whole different, you know, well, my, reality my, as what the treaty is portrayed is Hitler's goal was not to make a deal. It was to avoid war, to stop the British from this insane plan of making an alliance with the Soviet Union. Now, on Stalin's end, he's already thinking, I'm going to break this treaty anyway, mm -hmm. you know. This, this will buy me some more time. And he may have been in cahoots with the British all along as well, Stalin. And, and indeed, he was on the brink of invading Germany, which is why Germany went into the Soviet Union to hit them first. He was going to break the non-aggression pact because that's what Bolsheviks do. They don't honor their treaties. Right. So. Right. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're showing some of your, uh, some of your books on screen. Thank you, Thumper. Um, the um, the partition of Poland, if you look at the partition, the actual maps that came out of the partition of Poland, um, Germany, basically, uh, the part they partitioned back was what was formerly Prussia, which was, and it went up and reconnected with Danzig and actually... Uh, the Russians ended up with a bigger portion of Poland than uh, you know than than ever. I mean, <laughs> you know. So what Hitler was trying to do is repatriate uh, an area that had been taken by the Versailles Treaty. And I'm am I wrong with that? But I, that's I, right. He, yeah. he didn't go beyond that. He 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 did not go beyond that. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Stalin, on the other hand, basically took all of Poland. <laughs> mm -hmm. Poland loses to exist, and and um, rounded up ten thousand Polish officers. Right. Okay. Herded them into Caton Forest. Caton Forest. Bullet to the back of the, tied their hands behind their back, a bullet to the back of the head, and buried them. Mm -hmm. And then. Um, when the Germans reclaimed that territory, when the war broke out the Soviet Union, they said, hey, look what we found. And they, they issued a call to the West to say, listen, do you want to see what we found? Because we, we're not at war yet, the United States, mm -hmm. we, when they discovered all of these corpses. Uh, the Western press was not, American press was not interested in the fact that Stalin and the NKVD 
cold-blooded murder 10,000 officers at Caton Forest, as well as thousands of other intellectuals and priests all over, all, all over the country. They weren't interested uh, in hearing that because, you know, you can't say a bad word about Uncle Joe Stalin because he's going to be our ally when we finally get into the war after we induce the Japanese into attacking mm -hmm. Pearl Harbor, which was also a justifiable attack, by the way. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's the deal with Poland. Uh, you know, G Germany just, and still Hitler would have allowed Poland to, to keep those territories in the days leading up to the war. He made an offer. It says, just give me a railway and a roadway one mile long connecting the German mainland to the to the Danzig area, and they wouldn't even go for that. Poland wouldn't even go for that because they're being propped up by FDR and Churchill's boys in in the UK. So that's a true story. Well, you know? um, let let's uh, let's go beyond that now. Let's talk about uh, war breaks out, uh, Operation Barbarossa, and the Germans go into. Uh, Ukraine and into the uh, western part of uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, first of all, uh, Stalin, as all this was going on, they were taking uh, some of the Balkan countries. They were uh, they had gone into uh, Finland and started a war with Finland. Uh, they had gone into Romania. Uh, Stalin was an expansionist, and he was doing things that most people don't even know about that were going on prior to Hitler going in, uh, in uh, Operation Barbarossa. And let's talk about uh, when he went into Ukraine, how he was uh, received by the Ukrainians, and what a wonderful, uh, popular guy Stalin was. Yeah. Well, they um, well, just to back up a little bit before that, in in the West, when they when they went into Belgium and Holland and and, and Norway, and then chased the British off the, off the beaches, um, those were also defensive invasions because the plan was Germany and France. They had a massed massive military force. They were going to come into the Rhineland through Belgium and Holland, which were pretending to be neutral, but they were not. So that's how uh, Germany came to be in, in Western Europe and explains those so-called invasions, what they were really all about. But now we get to um, early uh, 1941. By that time, the Germans had intelligence, and this is all proven, of a uh, massive Soviet military buildup along the German frontiers in the East. And they were in an offensive posture, meaning they were all kind of bunched up together. It wasn't like a defense, which is which is spread out. Uh, they were coming. He was, um, you know, Stalin had already violated his non-aggression pact that he had with Finland, and he had a non-aggression pact with Poland. I mean, that meant nothing. It was a piece of paper to him. So his intention was, while Germany was distracted with the war in the West, to launch a massive surprise attack and take Germany and essentially all of Europe. And, you know, Hitler got wind of this, and Operation Barbarossa was a preemptive attack. And it's interesting, in the first weeks and months, the just the sheer amount of men and material that the Germans captured 
it, it was just staggering. And there's a recording of Hitler in a private conversation with a general from Finland mm-hmm. talking I've about heard the number it. of tanks. And he was just shot. Where did they get all this stuff from? It's just incredible. And had that been set in motion against, it would have been all over. It was one of the most massive military offensive buildups in, in, in world history. So that's why he went into the Soviet Union. And as they went in, as the Germans went in through the Baltic states, through Ukraine, and even into the suburbs of, of Moscow, people were coming out greeting them with flowers, okay, and cheering for them as liberators. Uh, that ultimately began to change through a series of false flag attacks where, I mean, this is what they do. I'm, I'm, I'm certain that the Russians... The Soviets were, were clever enough to figure out, well, you know what, if we dress up in some guys in, in German uniforms, burn down a few villages, rape a few women, you know, that'll straighten out the population. They won't be so pro-German anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you, you see that the outpouring of gratitude from so many people have been oppressed by these Bolshevik commissars, uh, especially in, in uh, you know, Ukraine and, and the Baltic regions mm-hmm. where they even turned against some of the Jewish commissars and killed them. So that's the, you know, again, this is the pattern, whether you're talking about Poland or Norway or Belgium or Holland or Greece or Yugoslavia or the Soviet union in every case, you know, this is portrayed by the fake news as German aggression, but it's not. Mm-hmm. They're trying to preempt the advances of the allies, whether it was the British, the French, or, or, or the Russians. I mean, Europe is very small, and Germany is located at the center. You can't wait for the fight to come to you, okay? And you have to go out into these countries, uh, which are either collaborating or even against their will are being invaded by the British and French and the Soviets coming, coming at you. Mm-hmm. So it was all it was all preemptive. It truly was, and it's hard to explain, uh, explain to people because they they rattle off the names of all the countries the Germans went in, and they say, "Oh, he was a madman, wanted to take over the world." Well, he didn't go into Sweden. Why is that? He didn't go into Switzerland. Why not? Because those countries were truly neutral. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. As a matter of yeah. fact, uh, uh, Stalin uh, bombed uh, part of Sweden uh, <laughs> before. Uh, Hitler went into into uh, Russia. Uh, Stalin had uh, bombed a uh, a city in Sweden. Well, they bombed Helsinki in Finland. They committed some atrocities in Finland, and nobody cared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it went into Finland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, a piece of Romania, Poland. Nobody cared. Uncle nobody said Uncle Joe is is yeah. uh, Roosevelt. He's me. being he was being praised big time in the Western press. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's movies that have finally come out about that and how uh, skewed the uh, reporting was on the Ukraine, on all the atrocities that uh, Stalin had done. Uh, Kate and Wood. Uh, a lot of things had been suppressed in the American and European press. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, no. Mike, uh, talk about, if you would, um, everybody needs to hear a little bit about what uh, Hitler, after Dunkirk, 
and the evacuations, uh, what uh, Hitler did, and I know that uh, Rudolf Hess actually flew into the UK uh, to try to initiate uh, some peace agreements. Talk a little bit about some of these things. Yeah, it's truly incredible that the lengths that Hitler went through. I mean, he did everything but crawl on his knees begging for peace. It's just amazing. Even prior to the Hess mission, the Germans, at a time when the British were already bombing Germany, <clears throat> dropped peace leaflets over London. He was hoping to circumvent the British fake news. It was a direct appeal to the British people in, in mm -hmm. English. There were peace leaflets giving his side of the story and how he doesn't want the war. Uh, then in 1941, Hess, who's his right-hand man, he's the third in line in, in uh, the German hierarchy, Mm -hmm. Hess is the man who uh, typed out Mein Kampf. Uh, mm -hmm. Hitler dictated it to him. When right. he was in That's how close he was to Hess. He parachutes, <clears throat> takes a plane, single plane, parachutes into Scotland with a, with a peace offer. And I mean, this is just in incredible. You can't make up something like this. This is Hitler's And they throw him man. in prison. <laughs> and what do they do? They put him in prison and they kept him in prison until uh, the late 1980s, he's a 90-year-old man, and all along he's in prison, and it was the Soviets who were like, we're never going to let him go. But the British are pretending, ah, let him go. Soviets, no. Soviet Union uh, starts to disintegrate. Gorbachev makes a comment, you know, uh, you know, maybe we should let this guy go now. And how, did sudden, end up in, how did he end up in... Uh, in the hands of the Soviets. How did Hess end up in the hands of the Well, no, Soviets? he was not in a Soviet prison, but he was under joint, he was in a German prison, but it was under joint jurisdiction of the of the Allies, is something like- Oh, they so they entered, transferred you know, him there after the war, I see. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, East, East Germany. So with the disintegration, they're like, you know, let the guy go all of a sudden. The Soviets softened up their position, and now the British panicked. So what happens? He ends up dead all of a sudden. Mm. Okay? Actually, I was under the jurisdiction of Soviets because eh, it was East Germany. And wow. uh, he had these, they say he hanged himself. They didn't want him coming out be, because can you imagine Hitler's right-hand man, 90 years old, he's still lucid. They start interviewing him. He starts talking. Because the whole time he was in prison, he was never allowed to like communicate with the outside world. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, he was there on a peace mission. Um, <clears throat> and there's just so many of these amazing attempts that Hitler made at peace. <clears throat> the dropping of the leaflets, the dropping mm -hmm. of Rudolf Hess, the, the appeals to uh, the Vatican, the open letters that he wrote. Um, no, no rational, fair-minded person could say that at any time Hitler wanted war. He, he wanted peace. And even in the East, he didn't want war with the Soviet Union, but that was imposed on him, you know, uh, uh, as well. So it's a total inversion of reality in terms of who the good guys were and the bad guys were. And <clears throat> a lot of people don't realize this. Going back to Mein Kampf, Hitler specifically warns about an international conspiracy of elite Jewish financiers and their Marxist henchmen working for a one-world government. Mm -hmm. it's, it's right in there. Mm -hmm. um, it's the same struggle we have today. If you understand that, you understand World, 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 War, World War II. I mean, it just pretty much, you just take history and reverse it, and you'll get the truth. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you've written some other interesting books, and uh, <clears throat> I'll, I'll mention them. Uh, uh, the, the British Mad Dog about uh, Churchill, and you're, you bring out something that a lot of people don't know, but the original concentration camps uh, started in South Africa to, yeah. to uh, basically they went in and, and made prisoners out of the Boer women and children that were uh, out in the countryside so that they couldn't uh, feed their husbands and also as a way to try to get their husbands to surrender to the uh, British crown. The original concentration yeah. camps, and many people starved to death in those camps, were British. They weren't German. They were British. Well, Hitler, he was correct when he referred to Great Britain, the eternal warmonger. I mean, he gave a speech on December 11, 1941, shortly after Pearl Harbor, and he kind of laid out the history of everything. Um, But just historically, Britain has just been, you know, horrible (laughs) in its its treatment of of other countries. Anytime a country starts to rise up, the the British feel the need to put it down, put it in its place. And they initiated the wars against the the old Dutch Empire uh, and, and the Spaniards, and against Napoleon, it's it's always the same pattern, a sense of British supremacy, which later on merged with Jewish supremacy. And it was like a match made in hell. The Jews had the money and the influence, and the British had the international empire. Uh, but in the end, the British lost it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ezra Pound, the great, the great poet, said, you know, you tried to out-Jew the Jew, and now you're going to lose your empire. Well, here you know, here's yeah. here's something that um, I th- think is important too is that uh, the British have also turned their back on some of their best allies. There's a uh, a book that was written by Ian Smith called Betrayal. I've got the book, and it talks about how Rhodesia was betrayed by the British uh, and turned over to. Uh, a uh, communist dictator and became uh, ultimately yeah. became uh, Zimbabwe under Robert Mugabe. Yeah, well, after after the Second World War, the the British kind of became the British um, foreign policy establishment really threw in their lot with the globalists, the one world globalists. Mm-hmm. So uh, they dismantled their their, their own empire in service of the the global new new world order so that old uh imperialistic britain is is gone that all i that whole ideal and so uh the you know the british leaders like of 100 years ago they envisioned you know a british american world empire yeah. or anglophiles right uh, the british elite of today are just like you know degenerates um, but they have no sense of British patriotism. They serve the new world order. Okay. Whereas before it was kind of the globalists would use British imperialism or French imperialism for their own purposes. Ultimately, they just kind of neutralized them. So well, things like World War I and World War II, it wasn't just the globalism. It was also the, the French and British chauvinism, imperialism. Uh, uh, but the globalists, the Jewish financiers, were using them. 
Since so, so after they used them, they undermined their own empires, and now there is no French Empire, and and there is there is no British Empire. They they serve the one world system, uh, totally. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting book that was written by Joan Bion, and uh, one of the in in the process of. Uh, submitting to the New World Order, one of the agreements that they did in the UN is that the, uh, uh, the British still have all the votes of all these spin-off uh, parts of their empire. And uh, Prince Charles right now uh, controls 53 votes in the UN uh, as the British monarchy still has that power. Uh, wow. And a lot of people don't know that, but uh, yeah. there, there's a great book that uh, Joan Bion wrote about that and did a video series on it uh, that uh, like Canada and Australia and all these countries that we think as independent sovereign countries are actually still in the UN, uh, the UK controls their vote. And there's 53 yeah. total little countries like Belize and, yeah. you know, yeah. the Bahamas. And I mean, there's all these different places around the world that the British owned and controlled yeah. when they were an empire, but they still have their votes in the UN under yeah. a, an agreement that was made when the UN was formed. Well, somewhere along the line, the, the British monarchy and aristocracy, uh, came to understand if we're going to survive and not go extinct like so, some of the other monarchies of Europe, we're going to have to accept our subordinate position to the Rothschilds. Mm -hmm. And, and you notice they, they kind of prop, you know, the, 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 you don't, you don't see the, the press uh, propping up the monarchies of other countries. You know, monarchy is always bad, but they love the British monarchy for some reason. Mm -hmm. You ever notice that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's all oh, Diana, Charles, Prince William. Yeah, you never hear enough from them. So they were basically allowed to keep what they have, which is quite extensive. Significant. Mm -hmm. But understand who the real boss is, because mm -hmm. they, they could have taken them out. And there were assassination attempts in the 19th century on uh, Queen Victoria. I'm sure that sent a message at a time when many other monarchs were being killed as well throughout Europe. And then you had King um, Edward, who was against World War II, and he was pro-Hitler, and he wanted good relations with Germany. You see how easily they took him out. They, they made up – well, first there was an assassination attempt. Then they, uh, they made this big stink about the fact that he married an American divorced woman, so right. you got to step down. So – so mm -hmm. they made it clear we're the boss, not, not not you. You got the title of king. You got lots of money. You got lots of mm -hmm. power in your own right, but don't get in our way. We want World War II. So they understand this, and mm -hmm. and yes, they wield an enormous amount of power, but that power has to be congruent with, consistent with the overall global world order, which controls them. I mean, there's a, I don't know if you've ever seen this picture of. Uh, 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 Evelyn de Rothschild, Sir Evelyn de Rothschild, who who died not too long ago, mm -hmm. yeah. speaking to Prince Charles, and he's got his finger in his chest. Have you ever seen that picture? I think I have, and I know. Uh, you know I don't know Charlie. what the full context is. I don't know the full context, but they're having a conversation. He's just fingering his chest, touching him. You know, it's 
That is totally against protocol. Nobody could do that. Who could put their finger in the chest of the, the heir to the British crown? Only one man, Sir Evelyn uh, uh, the Rothschild. When you see this picture, you can look it up online. Yeah. Sir Evelyn the Rothschild, finger in chest of Prince Charles. You see this picture. Mm-hmm. Pictures worth a thousand words. It tells you who the superior is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's, going back, that's going back to when the British crawled on their knees to Nathan Rothschild for money to defeat Napoleon. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. So that's, yeah. Exactly. That's exactly where it goes. Uh, I, Mike, one, I, I want to bring uh, Vladimir Putin. I know that. You wrote a book uh, about Vladimir Putin. We've got this mess going on now in the Ukraine, okay? Uh, people that don't understand, there's a hell of a lot of history uh, in the Ukraine. And frankly, uh, it, it was picked again, and that's kind of where the Kasarian Mafia came from in the first place, was the area now known as Ukraine uh, in Georgia, in that area. But um, what is happening now in Ukraine is a direct result of so much of the political crap that you uh, mentioned in your book and Putin, how he figures into this, because Putin really is a wild card, isn't he? Let's talk about that if you got time to talk about well, it. Well, it's, it's an interest, interesting parallel. They provoked Putin for the same reason they provoked Hitler. Uh, because he's against he's against the new world order. He, he has chased a lot of these these globalists out of Russia. I did articles on this. It's amazing how many of these Jewish oligarchs in the last two years they have fled Russia for Israel and Dubai. So it's it's the same pattern. You have someone who uh, in, in, inherited a country that was on his knees and completely broken, and he, he over the last twenty years he, he's brought it back strong enough to the point where. He could defy the globalists, as he did in Syria. And now he's taken back the eastern provinces of Ukraine, which, again, this is analogous to like the Sudetenland and, and, and Danzig Corridor. These are overwhelmingly pro-Russian, Russian-speaking people. And he's just, you know, they portray this as this major war. It really isn't. He just took the four eastern provinces, which maybe make up 12% of the Ukrainian landmass, and incorporated them back into Russia it was a limited military occupation. It's been over for a while. I, I don't know what kind of skirmishes are still going on, but Ukraine is not reclaiming anything. Uh, but Ukraine is a total puppet state uh, of the new world order. Mm-hmm. And the objective was, and Hillary Clinton just said this openly during the 2016 campaign, she wanted to bring Ukraine into NATO. Right. John McCain, John McCain said that too. Right. This was going to be another World War III hotspot. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's been neutralized in large measure because of you know Vladimir Putin, who is fighting the the new world order. And you know, once again, you understand that, and the the vilification of this man begins to make sense. I laid all of this out in the war against Putin, and you're absolutely right. There is a, a long story to this. Just like World War II did not begin in 1939. Uh, this current situation in Ukraine did not begin in 2022. It goes back, and it always, always stems to, you know, the manipulation of these globalist one-worlders who finally are getting a taste of their own medicine 
and they're having yeah, setbacks so. in many ways. Yeah, I, I hope so. Now, Mike, I'm going to tell you a, a little story here. I had uh, Dr. Paul Craig Roberts on about seven, eight years ago, I think, on my podcast. He called me and he said, Dan, I'd like to come on because this is important. Uh, there is clear evidence that the United States military, DOD and CIA are collecting DNA samples from all over Russia against the Slavic people, and they're gathering all this uh, genetic data, and they've got these bioweapons labs in Ukraine that are actively creating bioweapons against the Russian people, against the Slavic people. And um, it's important that people understand this will lead to World War III if we allow this to continue to happen. We actually talked about it on my podcast, and lo and behold, here we are years later, and we're finding out about all these 37 to 39 bio labs that were funded by DARPA, by DOD, by American yeah. agencies, and lo and behold, you know, they haven't talked about the bioweapons that were being created against Slavic people, but if uh, what Paul Craig Roberts said is true, hey, there's a reason to be taking these labs out. And incidentally, that's what Putin went after, was these yeah. bio labs. Yeah, Ukraine was their playground. And it's interesting you mentioned Paul Craig Roberts back in 2014, one of my readers sent him a copy of my book, The War Against Putin, the first edition, and then yeah. he um, he wrote a very, very nice review on it. And I remember I was still on Amazon in those days, and I, I saw my sales explode. I said, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. And I get an email, hey, Mike, uh, I sent uh, Paul Craig Roberts your book, and he did a great review on it. Mm -hmm. So I almost had a gratitude. <laughs> I got a lot of new readers from that. So... Uh, yeah, but no, he, he learned a lot from, from my book. I didn't write about biolabs back then, but it turns out he's right. Yeah, he's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. um, no, I mean, Russia was in the crosshairs. Uh, you know, Ukraine, you capture a country like Ukraine and you incorporate it into NATO. It is, Ukraine is kind of like California, only horizontal. It's very long. Mm -hmm. It's like 800 mm -hmm. miles long. So that's like an 800-mile advance towards Moscow. You can, uh -huh. you, now you're talking about taking out major Russian centers, not with ICBMs, but with medium-range missiles. That, that's that's a strategic yeah. nightmare. 600 okay. miles. 600 yeah. miles from Moscow. Yeah. Right. Right. So, you, they, cut, they, so they, they cut it down from like 1,500 miles to, to, to 600 miles. Unacceptable. We would never accept such a thing. I, I, I mean, this... What what the move that they made is totally legitimate and reasonable, uh, but again, you know, it's Putin the monster. I stand with Ukraine. All these idiots flying their blue and yellow flag. Do you do you even know the context of what's going on? So yeah, well, uh, and again, but this is why it's important. Right? Once you understand World War II, these things become easier to decipher. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's sort of like a template, and there's a, there's a pattern, and it just repeats. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. So. Well, now, um, since we're talking about modern events, uh, let's talk about planet Rothschild. Let's talk about uh, the new world order. Let's uh, do you have time for that? 
Uh, yeah, I got a few minutes. <laughs> okay, well, let's let's talk about that because this is a you know we're going to expose stuff. We're going to talk yeah. openly and candidly now. I will say, I'll make this statement. I'm not here to defend any individual or try to uh, falsify any history. I'm just trying to find out as much fact as I possibly can and air it to our listeners. And what you're doing is providing a brand new perspective, although we do talk about a lot of this stuff because we connect dots on this program. Yeah. And and frankly, the dots do all connect. We just need to open our eyes to them and understand that they do connect. So that being said, I want to give you a chance to connect the dots between the New World Order and all the things that are going on right now around the world and uh, the international communist movement, how it has been an incredibly useful tool to the globalists, and how uh, my ultimate, my ultimate, uh, uh, I guess, point that I would make is that you dumb communists, you dumb Marxists, you're, you're just going to be cannon fodder just like the rest of us. They're just using you as a tool to get to what they really want, which is one world global feudalist yeah. technocracy that they can control everything. Well, that's right. They, they've always controlled the Marxist movements, and a lot of it is unbeknownst to the rank and file of these communists and what I call liptarts who think somehow they're working for a better world. <laughs> um, but no, they are the bosses, okay? What, what Marxism, communism does for them, well, it achieves a few things. It it's a consolidating force, okay, because it's a top-down, you know, structure, massive taxes, massive spending. Uh, but there's more to Marxism than just the economic component. It's about tearing down culture, tearing exactly. down identities, national identities, religious identities, racial identities. Uh, traditional morality, marriage, the family, you tear it all down. Um, and then when, you know, they're done, it's like, thank you, Marxists. Now <laughs> you can go now. Yeah, well, do like the, Stalin did and kill all the guys that helped him yeah. where he was at once he's done with them. Yeah. But the new world order will not be, <clears throat> well, what they envision is not necessarily global communism, but global totalitarianism, which may have, quote-unquote, private elements to it, like the corporations, but those corporations will be subservient to the higher power. You see this with the World Economic Forum and the ESG investing schemes and, 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 and so on. So it's, it's about global totalitarianism, and it's interesting, whether it's Hitler or Putin, or Z of China or Trump, they all specifically condemn this. And you, you see this pattern. The people who specifically call out this emerging movement are the ones portrayed always as the, uh, as the bad guy. You see, the, the good news is, and maybe this will be a topic for a whole other story, is they're running into big problems now. They've never been up against anything like what's going on in the world today. Uh, like, like I said, they've lost Russia, which is, they've always wanted Russia. They've, for 200 years, it's been a struggle, whether it's been the czars or even later on when it was under Stalin, 
that's what the Cold War was about. Okay, it's not it's not that Stalin was a a, a good guy. Of course, that's not what I'm saying. But the Cold War is about the fact that Stalin, uh, if there was going to be a new world order, was it going to be run out of New York or London? You know, right. it's going to be was, run, was gonna out run out of Moscow. Yeah, right. So it was, it was like a conflict between gangsters. So whether it's the czar or whether it was a, a, a Stalin or whether it's Putin, Russian landmass, it's always the enemy. It has to be subdued because it's so large, so much resources. Well, they've exactly. lost Russia. They've lost Russia. They lost China. Yes, China calls themselves the Communist Party, but uh, it, it's 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 very pro business now. They've returned to tradition and they they moved away from that. They're more like a fascistic system. Yeah, uh, but not, boy, I have to yeah. I, on that one. I I have to tell you, yeah. Mike, their uh, control grid, their their social credit system, boy. Well, but the thing is, they don't they they don't seek to they don't seek to export that. And I don't know, it, it seems to be in the blood of the Asiatic people to be obedient and subservient. So that's their thing. But in terms of like national sovereignty, it is Russia and China that are protecting Central Asia now. Um, and, and they, you, you know, that combined power is keeping Israel well-behaved too now. So, but they are not part of the globalist system, at least. They do their, their own thing. A lot of the Latin American countries don't want part of this globalist system anymore. They had this thing called the FTAA, where they were going to merge North America, South America, like the European Union. That fell apart, and it was the South American countries that didn't want any part of it. They saw it as American dominance. So on many fronts, this global structure is, is weakened and fractured, and you saw this with the loss of Syria. That's a big deal, because when they set their sights on taking somebody down, Historically, they always get their man. Mm -hmm. They couldn't get Assad, and they're not going to get Assad. It's over now. Mm. So uh, same thing in Ukraine. They were supposed to trigger a NATO-Soviet war or Russian war. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen uh, either. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to subdue an entire planet with so many people in different countries. Um. Well, hopefully people are waking up and and just average people like you and me yeah. uh, and people listening to this podcast. Well, we're, we're, the digital, we're the digital army. I mean, yeah. collectively, this has a huge impact. And I sometimes wonder if, if uh, the, when the military released the internet technology to the, to the general public in the 90s, if maybe there are patriotic elements in the military who perhaps – envision this day when we could do an end run around the media because without the internet i mean mm -hmm. how, how would we even begin to compete with cbs no, abc true. nbc before there was no they did what they did and said whatever they wanted and they got away with bloody murder mm -hmm. they still do but to a far less extent it's harder now yeah because because people have this means to communicate well by uh, the day we we hear this by the day how many new people are listening to alternative media like ours. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's grown exponentially just in the last year or two. It is. Mm -hmm. It certainly is. And this is a big problem for them, which is why they wanted internet, uh, you know, censorship. I mean, before they launched the COVID hoax, they had that uh, uh, 
what, what was that called? Uh, Event 201 in New York City, sponsored by mm-hmm. the WHO and the Gates Foundation. And it was CIA people there. This is mm-hmm. three months before so-called COVID. And they said right there that, you know, if a pandemic breaks out, we have to dominate the communications. We can't have people coming out and saying this is Questioning. fake. This, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all right there. You can see these videos. So it's it's a big problem for them, which is why YouTube and Amazon started censoring and they removed my books. Uh, but at this point, in some ways, the cat's already out of the bag. They really can't stop the dissemination of this information. And they are, um, you know, they're, they're, they're weakening. And let's well, see where it leads to. Mike, you know? I'm, I'm going to do a, a shameless plug for your uh, for your. <laughs> website here and i want you to do the same but uh your website is real history chan c-h-a-n like a abbreviation of channel uh dot com and uh if they go there tell them how uh, tell our listeners what a great deal they can do if they sign up for your uh for your newsletter for your site um Man, they can have access to all these books off mm. the internet. I mean, this is like a, a huge, rich resource that's available. Talk a little bit about it. For how much? Yeah, well, a ton of the stuff, as people can see, is is free content. I try to keep things as much free as possible because the main purpose here is to get the word out. <laughs> but at the same time, we this is a full-time endeavor on my part, so we have to pay the bills too. So if, if people want the books that were all banned by Amazon, 25, 26 books, you can get the books. There's, there's a, uh, you'll see there's a, on the menu, it says banned books. Mm-hmm. And there's an, you, can get all, you can get them all as PDFs for just 29 bucks. If you want a six-month subscription to the newsletter, it's an extra $9. It's nothing. It's like stealing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, um, so, yeah, that, and, and then, of, of course, the, oh, there's also a, an option if you want to do automatic monthly donation, mm-hmm. $2, $5, $10, whatever. Because, uh, you know, it's very important because all of these alternative news sources that collectively have a huge impact uh, – you know, we don't exist without reader support. Okay. So, but at the very least, people should sign up for a free report that I give out, which gets you on the free mailing list too. You'll see it at the footer of every page. It's called how to respond to an anti-conspiracy theorist. And it, it reviews all the stupid things that normies say about, Oh, that's a conspiracy theory. You know, how can you get all these people? <laughs> it takes all of their arguments and it refutes them. There it is at the bottom. Join the mailing list and you get the free report, how to respond to an anti-conspiracy uh, theorist. So definitely at least get that. Kick the tires, enjoy the free stuff, donate if you can, or purchase the, the books either as paperback or PDFs. And I, I tell you, this is unique material that people have never seen before because it's not just about the amazing information that I put out. I purposely do it in such a way that anybody can grasp it and come up the learning curve very quickly. Mm-hmm. I don't write, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica stuff. Okay, right, I right. It's concise. not PhD uh, thesis right. stuff. This is no. this is written for people that uh, want to learn the truth. 
Yeah, people who have, you know, or people who have jobs, have things to do, lives to live. They want to get right to the point. I get right to the point, very clear, concise language. And I use a ton of illustrations with captions because I, I truly believe, you know, a, a picture's worth a thousand words and this really enhances uh, the information. And, and I mean, it's the kind of stuff you can just read an article and it'll, it will stick with you permanently, mm-hmm. you know? And I get right to the point and it's very powerful for that reason, which is why I was targeted on Amazon because, you know, a lot of people will buy books or PDFs or look at articles, maybe just glance the headlines. They don't typically read every word. My stuff is very page turning and sticky. It is. And and I have to. You get addicted to it. (laughs) Well, and I think I told you this, but uh, you you kind of, uh, the way that you put together your books, it reminded me when I when I was a kid, I used to be a big reader of Mad Magazine, and yeah. and it was a lot because uh, the the uh, the visual part of it, the cartoons, the caricatures that they did, were uh, you know really really startling and uh, really made you pay attention. And you do a very similar thing. Uh, your your stuff is well written. It's well researched, but you show an awful lot of uh, graphic, uh, you know, art yeah. that really portrays what you're getting at, and uh, they're easy to read. I mean, I've got a half a dozen of your books, and I've downloaded uh, for twenty nine dollars all of them, uh, mm-hmm. so that I could have every one of them. And uh, it's important that people get this stuff. I, I guarantee you, you can go. You can read one of your books in in a couple of hours just because it's so well done that it's quick to get through and the points are well taken. Hey, Dan. Yes. Uh, I've got a request to Mike uh, because I've got on his page right now, he's got a a post up here uh, concerning uh, Derek Johnson, whose shortened three-hour video I played last night on my show. And uh, I'd like to know, Mike's, uh, you know, uh, other than what you've written here on your webpage, uh, what's your opinion of Derek? What are your thoughts? I I say Derek puts the meat on the on the skeleton that I I've built <laughs> all, all of these last five years. What I mean is, I've been writing about things that have been going on behind the scenes, um, from you know just by basic logic and data and intuition and instinct. Uh, what, what Derek does is he, he, he digs into the legal stuff, particularly the military codes, which really explain how it's done. In other words, I've been writing about the who and the what. Now he's coming along and he's telling you the how, and you, and you read some of the documents from FEMA and the emergency executive orders and the military code, et cetera, and it really enhances it. So I, I think he's done a uh, you know a really great job. A lot of his stuff is really long, but I, sometimes I find myself getting engrossed in his videos, and I say, "Wow, did I just watch a two-hour video?" Yeah, well, uh, you know, and and that, and that's the thing. He has the patience and the perseverance to dig yeah. down into those documents. Uh, imagine, you know, I, yeah. I I I can hardly sit down. I I was in the insurance industry for thirty years. So I can hardly sit down and and read through an insurance policy. Yeah. Imagine trying to read the law of war manual, the executive uh, orders, the uh, and and uh, all of these other uh, official documents, the continuity of government documents that are out there. 
there, there's there's a pile load of them. And this guy seems to have the tenacity and the wherewithal yeah. to dig down in that and find these bits and pieces, and then go out and find video proof, you know, like this, the, you know, the, the gun salutes. Oh, that's uh, amazing. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, that, uh, and, and, and if you're, if you've been in the military and you understand military protocol, which is very important to the military, as you were saying, you know, the German yeah. Nazi was very, uh, the German, the Nazi army was very, very, uh, structured and uh, you know, uh, uh, now it's it's that that a good military Fair, is very well structured and has protocol and all of these things and uh, you know yeah. uh, the Germans were were famous for it. That's that's where you get the the idea of German precision and in yeah. in the things that they do and uh, the military is like that. Uh, and so when he's talking about this stuff, I had people last night on the chat just going, ah, you know, you know but okay, go read the damn documents. It's there. Yeah. No, yeah. It, it is. And, and you know what? I, I, re I remember the day of inauguration. I didn't catch the funeral part. I learned that from John, uh, until later on. But I, I, I did, if you recall, I, I remember Biden was sworn in 13 minutes early, something like that. Yes. And and that struck me as odd because, you know, I, I know these things are run with military precision. It's not trivial, you know, uh, but certainly that's what I mean about some of the stuff Johnson has brought forth that enhances yes. the stuff that I've been writing about and others have been writing about. We've all known. Well, but, well the but stuff about he's, he's really filling in the blanks. Well, and, and, and the, stuff about the, the, the flag and the and the fringe on the flag and all yeah. this. Mm -hmm. You have these people poo pooing these. All this symbol. No, every, everything has meaning. I, it has, I mean, it, you know, everything. You're in the military. You got a spot on your shoe. They yell, they yell at you, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So. Yeah. They trivialize this stuff uh, because, well, don't pay any attention to that. That's a nothing burger, you know. Yeah. Watch this over here, you know. And it, it, it I've for years, I've seen this going on. And uh, anyway, great show, Mike. Yeah, I, well, I absolutely. You, and uh, Mike, I, I know you weren't planning on being on for the whole two hours. Uh, we had uh, uh, planned to show a couple of videos, but I, I'm telling you, when you get into the meat of this discussion, it's, it's fascinating. I know it's, it's fascinating. Uh, and the thing is, you, you know, I, I'm I'm a, I'm the kind of guy I get on the phone with somebody like I might be talking to my wife. I'm like, yeah, honey, yeah, honey I got to go. I got to go. Mm -hmm. But you get into this stuff, and uh, whether you're on the listening end or the speaking end, uh, it is fascinating. I, I mean, there's no drama that can compare to real life. You're right you know? about that. And, and uh, Mike, I have to tell you, I consider you an old friend, even though, uh, yeah. you know, we've, we've only uh, been working together for a few years. I consider you an old friend because... Well, we're, we're, we're kindred spirits. We, we both do the same thing. We feel it's not just enough to know the information. There's an obligation to share it with uh, humanity. And uh, that's that's very important to just know this stuff and keep it to yourself. Uh, what are you what are you doing for for yeah. the world, for your family? You're doing nothing. You know, this yeah. is a, this is a war. We are soldiers. And our role is is in the information end of this, you know, so. Yep. yep. And well, and I'm I am thrilled to hear you 
uh, say that you think that uh, we're, we're putting a, a real nick in these bastards uh, because, uh, frankly, sometimes uh, you wonder if, uh, if we're really getting things done. I'm glad to hear you say that because uh, we've yeah. put so damn much of our lives into this stuff. Uh, you've yeah. dedicated your life to it, and I think you're like me. I, I don't yeah. plan on going quietly. I, I do not plan on going meekly to the gulag. They can kiss yeah. my ass. I am uh, here for the fight, and boy, I'll tell you what, it's going to be a dandy if they uh, uh, keep pushing well, it. I'll just close with this. Uh, I did a piece quoting uh, Trump the other day, saying this is the final battle against the communists and the globalists, and uh, we're, we're going to win. Uh, he's coming back. This time he's going to have power behind him. I mean, he had power before, but now he's got the entirety of the Republican Party. He's got there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on behind behind the scenes to uh, get us to this situation. And part of part of the plan calls for the American people to see how bad things can get. And there is an awakening going on, and it's it's part it's part of the plan, and just. I, I think you're going to see some dramatic things happening this year and next. I'll just uh, uh, say that Trump has got a plan up his sleeve and he is saying repeatedly, and he's using the word communist over and over, mm -hmm. which hasn't happened since Joe McCarthy. Uh, mm -hmm. Years past, you said that word, you were dismissed as a nutcase. And now he's just getting bolder and bolder in his rhetoric. He knows something. He's holding some kind of Trump card. Uh mm -hmm. Just sit back and watch. Mm -hmm. So there is, I do believe, I do believe there's hope. And I don't mean false hope, you know, of desperate people. Hopium. Just, yeah. just, right. There's just many signs. And we talked about a few today, like Syria and, and, and Ukraine and so on. And, and just the fact that the name of someone like George Soros is now uh, public, part of public conversation. Mm -hmm. Something like that is like a, a immense. So thing, things are happening. Uh, let's wait and see. Well, God bless you, my friend, and okay. thank you for being our guest. And uh, it was a fascinating discussion. I see that uh, Tim and Barb and Don are ready to go with You Don't Say. Uh, we're running a few minutes late, but uh, thank you for connecting okay. your thoughts with us. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, gentlemen. RealHistoryChan.com. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, and New York to LA, where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say.
Cause there ain't no doubt 